Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. We are Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. How many NFL stars have reached out to us about being on our podcast? So Princess Alexandra of Luxembourg is officially my new love interest. Can you imagine climbing in an Antarctica under a full moon? And it would just, you wouldn't even need a headlamp. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. We got a great one for you today with Conrad Anker, a mountaineer and climber of much fame in the industry and in the outdoors world in general. It's really cool to have Conrad on. He's done pretty much everything that everyone that's ever stepped into the outdoors has dreamed of. He's climbed Everest not once, but three times. He starred in a number of high profile films, including Meru, alongside his longtime climbing partner, Jimmy Chin. And... He's going to share the lowdown on his upcoming partnership with Airbnb, where you may actually have the opportunity to climb, raft, kayak, or maybe at least sit around a campfire with Conrad Anchor up in Big Sky, Montana. It's going to be a great one. Yeah, he's done things a lot of people could only dream of, but he's done things that most of the things he's done are things that are the contents of my own personal nightmares as a uh, not a very seasoned climber, let's just say. But we do start to plan my first ascent atop a peak in Antarctica in winter. So stay tuned for that because that's a uh, experience that's definitely going to happen for sure, 100%. But first, let's get right into hot takes. That's right. All right. Well, I got a good one for you here, Evan, off the top. Uh, so you recently wrote an article, and I've been editing and writing a lot of this content lately. You wrote an article about some really obscure out there Airbnb properties. And I'm curious if to you, these properties have any attraction do you want to go to them or are they just pure novelty they're supposed to be seamlessly integrated in nature that's like the the design of these properties that's the theme and some are cool they're like these transparent domes in the woods they're like places you can go you want to really get off the grid get away from everything and some of them are cool and some of them are pretty cheap so it's like it's they're they're like very economical so it's like a one room kind of studio type uh, apartments in like a dome and you're in the woods and it's very it's kind of like a nice romantic couples retreat i could see it for that but some are like a couple hundred bucks for the privilege of using a space that's smaller than a tiny house and they the attraction of it is that you get an off-the-grid experience so let's so pay us 250 bucks for an off-the-grid experience like if i wanted that kind of experience i'd go and sleep in a sleeping bag in the woods for free I mean, I think they look cool. I, you know, I, I take more value out of wanting to go to one of those than like the, there's the one in Idaho that's like a giant potato. Well, yeah. Of course, like it's cool, but it's a novelty, right? Like it's more of a, like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago uh, with Dylan from Atlas Obscura. It's one of those weird roadside attractions that is like cool because it's just so, for lack of a better term, dumb. Right. Yeah. So that to me, that's what some of these are. But I do kind of think that like the architecture of some of the ones, particularly in that piece we're referencing here uh, from Matador Network, are cool. But yes, like paying a ton of money to be off the grid kind of defeats the purpose of being off the grid in a way. Speaking of dumb things, also completely kind of unrelated. Did you hear about this beer that New Belgium is brewing that is supposed to be the worst beer ever created? Because it's to raise awareness for climate change, and the beer is made with 
ingredients that are allegedly the only things that you could find in the natural world post climate disaster. So New Belgium has identified somehow the natural ingredients that would be left in a scorched earth world. And they've used that to make a beer. The point being, if you let climate change continue, this is the beer you're going to be left with. And they've made this beer and they're selling it and people are buying it. Like people are actually purchasing a beer that's being marketed as the most disgusting beer ever created. It's a novelty. It's just the same thing. It's a novelty. I mean, I, they're raising money I, for, for the cause. I understand that. But yeah, it's a novelty. I do not personally have any interest in trying that beer. Yeah. No, I get it. I get raising money. It's a good cause and everything. I'm just curious, like, who would buy the worst beer? And I've had, like, one of my cousins was like, oh, yeah, like, I really want to try that. I'm like, why would you want to try that? Like, it's like the worst beer ever. <laughs> but I don't know. I just think it's like, it's peak hipsterism. It's like we are going to make a beer that's thematically based on climate change and call it the worst ever. And people are still going to, you're still going to eat it up. You're still going to want they're it. They're still going to buy it. They're still going to just haunting money. hipsters at this point. Uh, my next one is, so the other day I was sitting in a, in a bar restaurant in a, in Levada, Colorado, if I, you know, full disclosure. So I was out there, they had the news on in the bar and to me, that's always awkward when you're in like a public place, like an airport or a bar, and they have the news on with the volume, you know, and it's probably just a sign of how divided everything is right now. But it's just it's just weird, like literally have the volume on anything else other than the news when you're in the bar. Is that correct? Or is that what station? It was just like a local news channel. It wasn't like it was CNN or Fox or even anything, you know, political. It was just the news. And it's like, why are we? Why is the news on in the bar? I fully agree. I've been to bars or restaurants or hotel lobbies where there's just one person working and that that's the case where the news is on and it's always, always, always Fox News. And yeah, I think that it's to make a point. It's like, I hey, I got control of the remote. I'm going to watch this. This, is, this conforms with my views and you have to listen to it and there's nothing you can do about it. I just thought it was weird. Like, why aren't we watching... You know, why aren't we watching a baseball game or something? My favorite thing is being like me and like a friend are the only people at a bar on like, I don't know, like a Wednesday afternoon. And you have complete control over what TV gets volume. Yeah. You know, I, years ago, I used to work in a bar and it drove me so crazy when people would like go nuts about the TV and like if the channel was wrong or like the volume wasn't on and they wanted to watch this. It's like, why are you in a bar? You're, are you here to watch TV? Like, go home. Yeah, I mean, that's something I would never do if there was other people in the bar, like if it was busy. But if you're the only one there, I could see you going in. And I mean, I, I, I always think it'd be funny to request a really weird station, like Lifetime or Hallmark or something. Just stroll in there, post up at the bar, and demand the bartender change the channel to like the Lifetime movie of the week or Home Shopping Network. Like, hey, bro, uh, you mind switching it to HSN real quick? I hear they got some six scarves on deck tonight. Anyway, my first question for you, Tim, is would you ever marry into royalty? The thing about that is, like, if you do that, everybody is just immediately going to think that you're only marrying this person for their money. And so what if you did, Tim? I mean, whatever. If that's your if you just want to have like a cush life and you want to be like a you want to have a sugar mama, like whatever if that's your goal then that's fine but like i'm not gonna do that what if you actually like you were in love with 
a woman who happened to be a princess, would that give you pause? Or would that be like, oh, this is sick. I'm going to be a prince. Yeah, I mean, you put it that way. I, I don't know. Because I was thinking about this the other day. I was like watching news or I saw something about the royal family. And I was thinking, you know what's a good play? Just marrying like a princess. There's got to be tons of eligible royalty out there. And I don't know how you meet them, but it's super cool. You get to like be steeped in this historic tradition. You get to like get all the pomp and circumstance. Um, I See, this is the thing though. I wouldn't want to be in the British royal family because that's super high profile. And I don't think you could really enjoy that. I'd want like a, to marry into like a B-list royal family, like um, like Liechtenstein or Belgium or Luxembourg or something. You can kind of fly under the radar, you know, get, get your nice palace. People leave you alone. I guess. I, I, I'm going to Google I, this one. If you want, you know, if, yeah, if you're in love with this person, sure. I, I think the Mar... The far more realistic way to go about this would be to just marry somebody that has a trust fund. Yeah, it's different though. It's it's not just about marrying for money. It's about marrying for like the, I don't know the the like the 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 tradition and the titles and the the whole experience. I don't know. It's different. Okay, here we go. Princess Alexandra of Luxembourg, thirty years old, single, perfect. There we go. All right, Evan. Well, so Princess Alexandra of Luxembourg is officially my new love interest. So I will be the officiant at your wedding. <laughs> you think we're going to let a peasant officiate our wedding? <laughs> okay. Uh, that's funny, Tim. Okay. So she's the uh, fourth child and only daughter of Grand Duke Henry and Grand Duchess Maria Theresa. So she's not in line to be queen or anything. So she's low profile, but still royal. She's not going to have the cameras following her around. She'll still have a nice private life. Looks like she's got good style. She looks cool. She looks friendly. She looks like she'd get me. I think this is it. All right. I support you. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Really do. Really appreciate it. And hey, I mean, I heard through the grapevine that Princess Alexandra is a huge fan of No Blackout Dates, constant listener. So if you're listening right now, slide into my DMs at snowblackoutdatespod at gmail.com. And uh, okay, well, now that I've got a plan for a super healthy and not at all delusional relationship in the works, we can move on. Next question. This was actually a listener question, but I'm using it for hot takes. Given you and Tim's different personalities and interests, would you make good travel companions? I don't know, Tim, would we? I think we'd be fine. Yeah, as long as we weren't expected to spend every minute of the day together. Yeah, I mean, I think part of traveling comes down to uh, like actual physical interests. And part of it comes down to personality and like how like level of chillness, level of flexibility, things like that. I think on that level, I think we would travel well. Interests-wise, we might have some differing opinions. I mean, in San Diego, we didn't really have any disagreements on anything to do. I feel like we were pretty much on the same page. But I, I mean, like the older I get, though, like I'm kind of the way with anybody now, like even Alicia, like I, I want to have some time to myself sometimes when I'm traveling or or anywhere like I, i'm no longer i was for so many years like this uber social person that went out all the time and was always doing shit and i'm not really that person anymore you know like i don't i want to be social but not all the time i want to do my own thing sometimes mm, yeah that wouldn't work I, we'd have to hang out all the time well then we're not going to be good travel companions i refuse to be separated from my travel companions for more than three minutes at a time we have to do everything together going to the bathroom together a lot of hand holding I'm very needy, Tim. Very needy. Younger me. You should have traveled with 25-year-old me. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Are you not twenty-five, Tim? Come on. I'm in my mind. Yeah, in my mind. Well, I think that's it for hot takes. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna get right into the interview with Conrad. We'll see you guys on the other side. Okay, we're here with Conrad Anchor. Conrad, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to No Blackout Dates. Yeah, Tim. Nice to uh, virtually meet you. It's it is it's nice. It's funny because I've been watching you on YouTube and reading about you and watching you know movies, Meru, etc. for years and years. So it's really cool to uh, to get a chance to put some of these questions to you face to face. I'm excited, and I know Evan as well. But uh, we'll start here with probably what you're you're most known for. Or one of the things you're most known for is is climbing Everest three times. Obviously, a mountain that holds a mystical quality not only for climbers but uh, pretty much for anybody that's looked at a photograph of that mountain. So I, I'm curious if if a climber has any aspirations to climb Everest or maybe even just to reach base camp, what are a few things they would need to know that they might not have known otherwise, and what are, what makes it different from other mountains? Yeah, sounds good. And, um, thanks, uh, Tim, and also Evan for hosting me here and being part of this and sharing uh, travel through a climber's perspective. So when we look at Everest, there's two base camps. There's the north side, um, which is in Tibet, and you travel through China. And then on the south side is through Nepal. So, And they're both at 17,000 feet, uh, 5,700 meters above sea level. So they're about the same elevation on those. And with... Um, the, the Nepal side, I'll describe that. Um, you can fly into Kathmandu. Once you're in Kathmandu, take in the sights, the wonderful valley that it is. But once you get there, it's a hike up to um, an elevation of base camp. The Nepal side is well equipped with tea houses and lodges. And um, it uh, it takes a little bit of time to acclimatize. Um, it's the distance of a marathon from um, 26 miles from Namche to base camp. But you go from... Um, an elevation increase of uh, 15,000, 16,000 feet. And if you do that rapidly, then um, you'll, you'll feel the effects of altitude. So for someone who wants to climb Everest, who's a, who's a climber, but they've never done anything that extreme before, what, do you, what would you recommend they do to prepare? A great question. So look at mountaineering is there are no rules. It's complete anarchy. We self-regulate ourselves, but if you want to climb up and try the North Ridge of Everest in your flip-flops and a bandana, no one's going to stop you. The mountain and gravity and temperatures are going to, you know, you'd be done right away. But that openness is there. So, like, if you wanted to play Wimbledon, it's not going to happen for the three of us on this call. I'm pretty sure, right? Right. Yeah. So there's like no chance. But if you want to play in Wimbledon and climbing, which might be Everest for you, then it's it's there. So there are a lot of people that sign up. They're like, okay, I'm going to throw down the $40,000, $70,000 and I'm going to go on Everest and I'm going to, it's going to be my goal. And they come there with not enough background training. And when I got started, it was the climb in the, in the United States, the lower 48, go to climb Rainier and climb Denali. And then from Denali, climb the Himalayas, do some expeditions in the Himalayas, go to 6,000 meters, go to 7,000 meters. And I'd gone through all those process before I went to Everest the first time in 1999. So, um, but if that it's an open sport, it makes it wonderful and beautiful. And if you were keen to get out and and go after it, I would just start by getting in 3000 feet, a thousand meters of elevation gain, um, two or three times a week, kind of building that day in and day out over a 
18 month period and then figure out some longer days, start doing um, 2000 meter, um, 7,000 foot days. And then uh, training. Uh, Rainier in, in Washington is a stepping stone to Denali. Denali, if you have Denali, you'll have the cold weather down. You'll get to 6,000 meters. Everest is at 88.48. So it's a whole nother league above you. Or just hiking flip-flops and uh, wing it. Official <laughs> advice from, from Conrad Anchor, just go in flip-flops if you want. It's perfectly uh, perfectly safe. It's adventurous, you know. Also, I'm pretty sure you just killed Tim's dream of playing in Wimbledon. I know, I know. I, I played tennis in high school, but uh, that I never got anywhere close to doing anything that cool. I want to rewind a bit to your first trip to Everest back in 1999. Um, you were part of a search team, right, that located the body of George Mallory, who had taken part in the first ever British expedition to Everest back in the 1920s. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like being part of that search team and what it kind of meant to you to locate the body of someone who had been there before you, who was one of the first people to ever do it and who is such a significant climber in his own right? It's a hundred years ago this month that the first pioneering English expedition. So there was wow. a team in 1921, 22, and 24. And George Mallory was part of all three of those expeditions and as the uh, climbing leader. So to think that the wheels were in motion for climbing Everest 100 years ago is pretty significant to see that. So in 1921, they got there, they figured out the um, going up the Karta Valley and then coming around to the East Fork of the Wrong Book, which gets access to the North Ridge. They kind of unlocked that mystery. I mean, there wasn't Google Earth to look at the, the, the terrain and spin it around and plan or anything like that. So they figured that, came back in 1922. Um, they didn't time the monsoon correctly, which is when the majority of the snow comes flying in. And then 1923, they regrouped. It was at that point that, um, Mallory was in New York City and a reporter from the New York Times asked him why climb Everest. Any guess? I, I, I would say just to prove that it's possible. Well, it's Mallory's quote because it's there. This is what we do. We have these wonderfully large heads and we're incredibly smart and we're manipulating this planet and we're changing everything. But in the base of that is this exploration. And that was what... Um, what Mallory had when he was in that. They came back in 1924, and that was um, June 8th, 1924, was when he um, disappeared along with his climbing partner, Sandy Irvin. Is there any idea of what happened to him? Like what it was, was it the cold? Was it the like the avalanche? Like what, what happened? My guess is that they were above the first step, but not at the second step, somewhere in that vicinity. And turned around and that was it was somewhere in the first step that Noel Odell had the last sighting of them around noon um, and that they were then able to proceed up to the second step which is a 90-foot cliff band requiring technical climbing skills that weren't available at the time it, it's hard to see them having climbed that and then down climbed it with the equipment they had in the dark on that June 8th 1924. Speaking of which, what are kind of some of the scariest experiences that you've had on a mountain, a time that you thought that you or, you know, maybe one of your uh, climbing partners might not make it through? 99, I 
almost died in an avalanche. On that Everest expedition or another? That was Shishapongwa. 92 almost died in an avalanche in, in Antarctica. Um, 93 almost got carried off the mountain by a fallen coma. But yeah, there's some, um, if you're going to go in the high alpine environment, you need to make peace with death. You have to be aware of that. And how we process that as individuals in the community is, is, um, is just pretty intense. And there's, when that happens to um, people in their 20s or so, it's it's difficult. I mean, the first time I was 29, and I was like, wow, my best friend died. And I was like, fuck. And you're not like your bowling team. It's not like, oh, Ernie didn't make it back from bowling league, man. He got smushed by. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we play with fire, which some people are think it's cool. Other people are judgmental about, so. Yeah. Hey, I make my peace with death every time I do a like a two thousand footer hike. So I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I need to uh, I need to get on your level. Uh, take me through the avalanche thing a little bit because uh, it seems like that's one of the most threatening um, and most dangerous things for a climber, a high altitude climber. So what what is that like when that happens? Do you hear kind of like the rumbling of the snow and above you, and then you see it coming tumbling down the mountain, and you get what happens? You get trapped in it. You can't get out. Like you get, what, what, do you have to like avoid it altogether? How does how does that moment play out? The majority of avalanches that take place, say, in winter environment are human triggered. So you're going in there and then you're on that slope and your weight then triggers or the, so the majority of accidents in that sense happen to it. And the, what happened in Antarctica was I triggered it. But what the avalanche in 1999 on Shishapongma was we were in the runout zone below a hanging glacier. We... We're right in the middle of the runout, and it was coming down the mountain with um, incredible amount of force and speed. And um, death by avalanche is not good. You're drowning in the reverse with a lack of oxygen and being, you know, again, it's water with it. But um, definitely make you realize how insignificant we are when you're about to get bowled over by several tons of ice. And what's the strategy for dealing with that? So if you see that coming, like how do you? This case, I ran away, laid down, and to protect myself, I got pummeled, but I wasn't buried. But then, if you are in a situation, you do want to have a beacon, shovel, and a uh, transceiver—the three essential tools. People I know who are really avid hikers are always constantly looking for the next big challenge, and smaller mountains cease to hold any interest for them because it's too easy and because they always want something more difficult to conquer is that do you find that's uh, that same phenomenon happening with you in that once you've climbed you know like k2 or everest and then someone's like hey do you want to go hike like some random mountain in new hampshire that's like three thousand feet has that lost <laughs> its appeal for you kind of like the basic touristic hike or can you still enjoy that kind of thing the intrinsic reward that we get from being outdoors and being in nature where we're able to see, just be away from the human construct of glass and cement and steel and automobiles and just hyperconnectivity oversubscribed life. And we escape from being outdoors with that. And that same reward, I get it now hiking or climbing at my age and, and, and climbing a moderate climb and having that same enjoyment. So there's no... Um, it's about being present in the moment and that regardless of where I am, people are like, hey, did you get out climbing this season? I'm like, well, I try to get out climbing three days a week and it rejuvenates my soul and 
We only have a little bit of time here, so you might as well do what we enjoy, right? This might be like asking you to to choose one of your favorite children, but uh, do you have a favorite mountain? Do you have one that you've kind of gone back to multiple times that you just you get something out of that you don't get from others, or one that has the most beautiful view or the most beautiful ascent? The climbs in the Himalayas, you go. I mean, you know, to go back and do another repeat Meru would just be a so a ton of time and expense and everything like that. But um, kind of in a like favorite climbs, Rostrum, which is a, a feature in Yosemite National Park in Yosemite Valley, that's like a favorite to come back to. Probably moreover, there if wherever I'm at on that given day, like if I can go outdoors and when I get outdoors this weekend here in Montana in the woods, that's going to be I'm going to be totally stoked. And climbing to the high point on in Taiwan, I think back like yeah, it was foggy and there were pilgrims and there were people there and it was and you took a train. It was like all this. It wasn't what we think about as nature here in in, in the United States, which is again different than Europe and different than Southeast Asia. But there, it was like this. It was still a great experience, and I still think back to. To being there on, and, and seeing those people and being there in that morning and watching the sunrise. So let's move into something that we nerd out about a lot on this show, which is gear and packing. So I, you know, I watch these movies of climbers and, and you know, a lot of the snowboarders I follow and, and the stuff that they are lugging around with them. When you're flying out of Bozeman Yellowstone Airport, how much shit are you carrying with you if, if you're going, you know, maybe to Yosemite and but also, you know, over to the Himalayas? What's are you checking like seven bags worth of gear? Oh, good question. So um, climbing in Yosemite, if you're free climbing um, and not big wall climbing, which requires more equipment, you can probably get by one seventy pound bag. So your harness, your rope, your rack, a tent, a sleeping bag, a stove. Um, a change of clothes, you're good to go. And but then when you get to the to go to the Himalayas, if you're um, again the 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 technical difficulty and the temperature differences that you'd be encountering, re- that changes how much equipment that you might need on something. So when you're say going to um, Everest, you, you have a down suit, you have two sleeping bags, you have trekking clothes. There's quite a bit of equipment there. And I would probably try to do everything in two 70-pound bags, I guess, would be my thing. But I've also flown to Everest with 22 checked-in bags. So it's... <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. That there's... is a lot of stuff. When you're making a film and all of a sudden the big cargo cases come rolling in. Right. <laughs> what is it like to live this kind of lifestyle with a family back home. I mean, you kind of just said every time you go to do high altitude climbing, you, you make your peace knowing like, Hey, this could be, this is incredibly dangerous. Is that tough to, to kind of keep leaving them and then having to not know when you're going to come back and then worrying about you? Um, the worry is there, but it's also, we have a plan. So we, it, it's what I do and I've been spending a life doing it. So it's, um, and it's interesting because some people are like, oh, it's absolutely crazy. You're, you're abandoning the kids and their value set within that. And in this day and age, you have to choose not to communicate. When I got started, it would be a postcard that would come get postmarked in Delhi when we landed. And then maybe another postcard from the last village if that made it through. And then it would be a month or two after there. And then 
we'd come back and we would always, um, once we got back to the city, it was, we would send a telex to my parents. And so that was always, and this is when I was in my twenties and climbing in the Himalayas. And then my mom was like, okay, if the Western Union guy drives up the driveway to deliver a, a telex and an envelope, I mean, think about how antiquated that is, you know, pre-fax and anything like that. And then you're doing okay. But if it's the man in blue, if it's the police officer, then we're like, okay, you know, something had happened to us. So our family works well with it. So, and our boys, our oldest son, Max, is uh, working on a film titled Torn, which we come out this uh, September, October. And he's um, loves the outdoors and traveling. And so, yeah, I'm like, hey, Float the Grand Canyon. Heck yeah. Enjoy that stuff. Your kids must have loved so, that when they were younger. Like and the, their friends asked like what your parents do. Oh yeah, my dad's an accountant or my dad's a consultant. It's like, oh yeah, my dad's climbing Everest. Yeah, it was a little bit of, uh, it was, um, I was the cool dad. So I was always being volunteered to take, the amount of children that I took climbing for the first time is, and it's yeah, great. Yeah, the cool dad, yeah. They're now adults and I still really enjoy that. Because climbing is something, when you do it, it's really good. But yeah, it was funny at, at in, when the boys were like in 10th or 11th grade, there was like, there's a YouTube video where I'm rope bungee jumping in Yosemite with Dan Osmond. <laughs> <laughs> it was found when the boys were in 10th grade. And it was like this huge, yeah. <laughs> we were watching it. And then like one of the other parents sent it to us and they're like, oh, like now here? my kid wants to try this. <laughs> you're crazy. I can't believe this. Yeah. And as a parent, you're, your goal is that your children are happy and they have great friends and they're not self-destructive and going out and kayaking and skiing and climbing and trekking and bird watching. They're all life affirming things. I mean, you're not crushing a sofa, doing nothing. You're out there exercising your body. You're coming back rejuvenated. And so we're all in the same way. So, and now you've officially retired from high altitude climbing, right? Yeah, I, I'm no more Everest, and there I had a heart attack in 2016. So, on the mountain, on the mountain in in uh, in Nepal. Yeah, it was nine hours. I had an angioplasty done in Kathmandu. Well, was that and that was the due to altitude? Uh, probably, but kind of more in a. I might have damaged my heart earlier in 2012 when I climbed Everest without supplemental oxygen. So, but yeah, it was. It was a wake-up call. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. the climbing it earlier without supplemental oxygen, was that just something you wanted to do for the challenge? Yeah. The two previous times I'd wanted to do it, but I was obligated to, to work. And so I, to in this in the interest of the safety, but I felt like within I had the strength to do it. And so this last time I planned, but three times I'm done. <laughs> as you're at this stage in your career and you've been doing it for a long time you've kind of watched climbing become more well known and more mainstream and accepted as as maybe not something that everybody's going to do but as something that people know and i think obviously alex honnold has with his, with some of his films has really brought that you know to to the mainstream i'm curious what your thoughts are on all, on all of that and if you think climbing still maintains its kind of niche dirtbag soul yeah, good question. A um, couple of big changes in climbing. Um, sticky rubber, climbing cams, auto-lock belay devices like the Grigri, those are like three milestones. And then, boom, 
climbing gyms. And that really changed it. And then climbing gyms, they got popular and we kind of had the advent of social media and GoPros and instantaneous and sort of, it became like, it wasn't just doing it. You had to like perform or it had to be theatrical or have like some sort of like, it was more daring. The last guy, I mean, the guys that, that wingsuit through holes in mountains and shit like that. You know, like, but the, the climbing gym is really good. Wherever you go in the world, you will then speak the language of belay. And that is about trust, communication, your hand, your life is in my hands and vice versa. And there's a really great connection that humans have when they interact that way, which is different than playing tennis, where if Tim, if you and I play, you're going to be better than I am because you were like almost to Wimbledon, you were on the high school team, you're younger. Almost, man. The word prodigy was definitely thrown around. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like false modesty, hop over the net. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> One of us has got to lose, right? But in climbing, it's a solo sport. And so you're challenging yourself. And you can have, in a climbing gym, you can have hard climbs right next to a moderate climb, depending on the size of the handholds. And so you have that interaction between expert and, and non-expert. And so there's if you go to a climbing gym in New York, where Alex Honnold was last week, you would like meet Alex Honnold. And are we going to meet Serena Williams at the tennis court? No, because no. she's training at her her place right and so there's the again that kind of that openness and that sense of community i'm not one to grouse about more people climbing and the um the dirtbag ethos of it it's still there if that's what you want to live all right well we're going to move into uh our, our section is a listener question where we have uh, a, a tailored question from a listener that uh, we we try to make appropriate for the show so today's is something that I'm sure you've heard before, but I'm curious if you have a, a unique take on it. What is the hardest mountain you've ever climbed and why? That would be um, Meru. The, it took three expeditions and um, sort of the culmination of my climbing skills and cold weather adaptation type things. Um, but the hardest mountain is the one you never get up. So I've got Fair enough. <laughs> Meru is in the Himalayas, right? That's correct. Yeah, and what, what? So, what mountains have you not succeeded on? And if you if you still could, if you weren't uh, hadn't already submitted your uh, special retirement papers, would you want to conquer still? Well, we don't conquer them because it's always by the good going of the mountain and that you have the weather and you go with it. So it's kind of um, right. Yeah, I'm always like, oh, I'm not conquering the mountains. I'm just lucky. Didn't get, the mousetrap didn't get sprung on me in that metal bar on the back, but. So Southeast Ridge of Annapurna 3, I tried that, no success. And that is for you youngsters out there that are climbing aficionados, go get it. <laughs> That's one of the big Himalayan processes on there. Um, the east face of Mushabrum, um, Ulvatana and Antarctica. I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many topographical unique features on this planet there's plenty of things to go climb but i'm guessing when you do antarctica climbing you have to go in the summer right yep have you ever considered kind of like climbing everest with no oxygen just do it in antarctica peak in the winter just to say you did it let's go out on that one yeah vincent the high point of antarctica hasn't been climbed in winter we always joke around in tent like what would it take and so you'd be like okay if you wanted to do it off the grid and not bring a bunch of fuel in to run a generator how much electricity would you need how much food would you need um can you imagine climbing in an antarctica under a full moon and it would just you wouldn't even need a headlamp and, and it's um and 
Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, ALE, which is the outfit that gets you to um, Antarctica. And I've worked with them over the years and the decades. So, um, Nick, you're going to listen to this and you're going to be like, Conrad, yeah, he got together with Tim and Ian. those guys, they were like, they made the plan to climb Minson in the winter. We're going to go for it. So it's not that we haven't thought about it. Let's, 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 let's hash it out right now. Let's figure out how yeah. this is going to work. Yeah, Ev- Evan needs to be the first one. Evan's the first one on the summit. There's, uh, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, there are two tragedies in life, getting what you want and not getting what you want. Anytime I come back from an expedition and I'm healthy, that's success. So my success is 10 toes, 10 fingers, and a nose. So you're there. You haven't lost anything to cold. You've not gotten sick. And that's success on that. Making it to the summit is why we go there. But the process of getting us to that summit is as significant as the summit. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Conrad, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get the Airbnb guys going too, right? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Let's close out with the Airbnb experience because we haven't talked about it yet, I don't think. Yeah. So you're hosting an Airbnb stay at Big Sky. Give us the lowdown on that and 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 what's going on. Yeah. So on top of Andesite Mountain is a lodge that's owned by Big Sky. So they're opening up that um, that top sort of house of that just for a couple nights in October. And technically or in the books, I'm going to be in in the Himalayas working on an expedition, but with COVID being the way things are, we don't know. We still haven't, we have a kill date on the expedition. We haven't, once we get to that, if I'm not there or if I get back early, I'll be with the uh, the people. But yeah, they'll um, either take a chairlift or you get a all-terrain vehicle that drives you up there. The, the Big Sky Ski Resort helps out with that. And then, yeah, if I'm in town, which... It's probably going to be what it is. We're going to go climbing or mountain biking or rafting or whatever, whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm excited for it. And I've used Airbnbs in other places and been, I mean, it's a great service that, that connects people. And I've had a good experience and to give someone this opportunity to do this uh, here in Montana. It's kind of a, yeah, <laughs> let's have fun. Big Airbnb guy. Definitely check that out. The big sky stay with Conrad Anchor. Anything else you're working on right now or you want people to keep an eye out for? Um, I mentioned Max's film Torn, um, but other than that, just, um, you know, we're we're out here. Follow along in social media. Well, thank you so much, man. Awesome. This has been great. Thanks so much for stopping by. Take care, gentlemen. All right. Well, that was a great chat with Conrad. That was uh, probably one of the more serious chats and and, and in-depth chats we've had with a guest. And my first takeaway from it is that you need to be at peace with the decisions you make and what might come of those decisions. And I think Conrad is a perfect example of that as as a climber, somebody who for a living does very dangerous expeditions. And he has to leave his family at home when he's doing these things and kind of you know, deal with the emotional turmoil that can come with that, not just for him, but for his wife and kids. Uh, And I know, you know, for a lot of people in the outdoors community, that's a, that's a major thing. It's kind of funny because when I asked that question about, oh, how do your wife and kids feel about this when you go off to Everest and, you know, you might not come back to me, that's like a, they would just be out of sorts for months until, until you're back home safe. But the way he answered it was really interesting because it shows the true mindset of people who embrace that kind of lifestyle and that if that's what you do for a living, if you're a high altitude climber and your wife signs up for that and your kids are 
you know, used to that, that's, that becomes your lifestyle. So it doesn't matter how extreme your lifestyle might seem to people on the outside to a couple of couch potatoes like us. And it's almost like any other parent saying like, Hey, I got to go on a business trip for a couple of weeks. He's whereas for him. It's like, hey, go on to climb uh, some Himalayan peak, be back in a few months. Right. Uh, then, and the next thing I, I took away from talking to Conrad is that success isn't always what it seems. And by, by this, I mean that, you know, he noted that, you know, getting to the summit is all, always great, but it's not always the most important thing. Coming back home safe with 10 fingers, 10 toes and a nose, to quote him directly, that's a successful expedition there. You know, the, a, a, everything that happens along the way is what counts. If you get the summit, if you complete your mission exactly as planned, that's a bonus. It's not the destination, it's the journey. Right. I just made that up. Feel free to use it. It's yeah, yeah, that's a that's your hidden gem quote of the day, Evan. Yeah, I mean I I I would find it very tough to enjoy the journey, I think. On a that's one thing if you're like doing a leisurely high. I find it hard to enjoy the journey on a three thousand footer because I'm still like huffing and puffing the whole way. And I'm like, oh my God, are we there yet? But imagine doing Everest when every 10 minutes, it's like, okay, is there going to be an avalanche? Am I climbing this right? Am I going to trigger an avalanche? Am I, can I breathe correctly? Let alone stop and enjoy the trek and actually like take pleasure in the, the journey and stop and smell the roses. So anyone who's able to do that and be mindful enough to do that, hats off to them. Right, right. I it, It's... You know, listening to him say some of these things, you know, I mean, as as a snowboarder and someone that does a lot of backcountry, not that anything I do is nearly as hardcore as as what he does climbing in the Himalayas and Antarctica, etc. However, the risk of an avalanche is always there, and and that's that's something that I've been I've I struggle to embrace sometimes is that sometimes it's you you're gonna be happier when you pull the plug, knowing that you made the right decision rather than proceeding with a risk that, you know, you might not be able to properly calculate. And I, I think that's, in so many words, kind of the mantra of, of uh, expeditions and, and climbing and, and mountaineering is, is know when to pull the plug and know where your line is. And there's absolutely no shame in, in not crossing that line. My favorite thing he said is, make your peace with death. Tim, do you make your peace with death every time you step outside your front door? Probably not. Probably not as much as I should, no. No? I do it every time. Go to pick up a pizza, I make my peace with death. Go grocery shopping, make my peace with death. Getting the mail, you get the idea. Every time, every time. Got to do it. You're that guy, Evan. You're good at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do your people say? What are your hobbies? What are your interests? I say making my peace with death. And then, you know, that's usually the end of the conversation for some reason. Yeah, but if they did follow up, then you could just say, look, it's the only inevitable future. <laughs> and they'll be like, wow, this guy sounds fun to be around. I'm definitely not having a beer with this guy. <laughs> All right. Any more takeaways? Those were the two biggest ones that stuck out to me. I mean, the other thing is that Conrad Anchor and and not just him, but a lot of the people in, in the climbing community, as he noted, and in my experience in the outdoors community as a whole, are very approachable. And, and as opposed to, you know, some top tier NFL athlete or something like that, that basically lives in a bubble. Uh, these people actually are the same guy. You're, you're going to run into, you know, Alex Honnold at the climbing gym in New York, like he said, and you're going to run into Conrad up in Montana. If you're climbing at the you know best spots up there, like these are people that you're going to see because they've made a living 
and made a career out of, you know, this dirtbag lifestyle. And they just happened to have stuck with it long enough and gotten good enough at it and dedicated themselves to it to be able to turn it into a profession, you know, but they're still the same people that are stoked on getting out there on a Saturday and climbing these mountains. Are you suggesting that NFL superstars are not approachable on the street? How many NFL stars have reached out to us about being on our podcast? Dude, Tom Brady has been literally harassing me for months trying to be, dude, dude can I be on no blackout dates? Like, I, I got the Super Bowl coming up next week, but like, I'll carve out 45 minutes for you guys. It's like, dude, just focus on your game. That's right. That's right. Uh, Tom, if you're listening, look, bro, <laughs> chill out. Well, I think that'll about do us uh, for us here on No Blackout Dates this week. Thanks again to Conrad Anchor for coming out, uh, chatting with us, sharing the lowdown on his Airbnb Big Sky experience that's coming up and pretty much everything that's badass about his rock-upation, I think we can call it that officially. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Head over to Apple, leave us a review, let us know what you think, let us know if you would be down to ever do any of these Himalayan expeditions. We'll see you next time. Rocky patient. <laughs> oh, that's funny.